Hear the word of God as it is written in the book of Colossians, chapter 2, from verse 6. So then, just as you received Jesus Christ as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. In him you are also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, and raised with him through your faith in the power of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen, and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He has lost connection with the head, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with us, with use, because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their spiritual, with their self-imposed worship their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. And here ends the lesson. Our Lord God, we give you thanks for this letter from the Apostle Paul, which is also a letter from you. And we pray that you would help us to understand some of the things that are being spoken about here and to let them be the foundation for our knowledge of you and reminders of how you call us to live as your people. We pray for this time now and a humble heart before you to receive these things. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, every so often I see a conference brochure. Sometimes it's an ad from a, a, a Christian conference around the world where a speaker is marketed in the brochure and they market the speaker along these lines. So-and-so has a powerful anointing from the Lord or so-and-so has authority to teach because God communicates with them directly. 
I've heard people recount to me situations where they say, well, God speaks to this particular person in dreams, and so we should listen to him. And their, their authority on any particular matter becomes because they've had a special experience with God, one that we can't really question, and so clearly they are the authority on any particular matter. And there's other people who I keep bumping into from time to time who say things like, Peter, you're doing pretty well, but we really think you should uh, move forward. You need a, a new spiritual experience and then you'll, you'll move on to maturity in Christ. If you can just get on to something a bit newer. Well, what are we to think in the face of those sorts of things that insinuate uh, we don't have enough? What are we to think? Are we to think that we're just what might be described as brummy Christians. We're like the poor country cousins who are behind the eight ball and that we're very spiritually backward. How do we think that we're spiritually poor and that we're just, we should be queuing up behind these people with the anointing and taking whatever they've got on offer because they've got it and, hey, we don't. Well, I suppose the short answer is we could be left thinking that we're really missing out. And we need to look further afield from a simple Bible-believing faith in Christ to something new and improved. But friends, if you've ever felt this pressure to think of yourself as just a, a simple grunt Christian, someone low on the pecking order, don't be alarmed because this is not a new problem. This problem was what Paul responded to uh, some 2,000 years ago with the church at Colossae. Those people also were encouraged to move on from what they began with. But Paul encourages them to remember to keep Christ central. And that's the first point in the outline, if you're following on with me there. Paul encourages the Colossians to continue their Christian lives the way they began them. <clears throat> we pick that up in chapter 2, verse 6 and 7. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Epaphras was a faithful Christian man who was sent from Paul to share the gospel with the Colossians, and he shared that great news of salvation that's found in Christ, and they received that tradition from him. And Paul encourages these people to actually continue in the way that they began. Continue to live your lives in him. Strengthen the faith as you were taught. They are not to move from what they were taught, that tradition they received with, from Epaphras. They were to stay with that. And he uses some good language, some good images to describe how they're to continue on in the faith that they actually started in. And the first one where he says, rooted and built up in him. And it brings to mind the image of a healthy tree that's put down some solid roots and it's grown strong. So that's become so immovable that maybe even a semi-trailer could hit the tree, but it's not going anywhere because it's got deep roots. Rooted and built up in him. Built up reminds us of the idea of a building that's built on a solid foundation, not a foundation that's going to warp and move and cause cracks and problems, but the, the solid foundation, which is Christ. And people are to be built on that foundation alone, not a foundation of Mary or of works or anything else, 
that would be built on that foundation of Jesus alone, brick by brick, built into a solid structure that's not going anywhere. And strengthened in the faith, the faith that they were taught. This is the idea that they've got to reinforce what they started with, like using something... Uh, when you go to tie down the load on a trailer, you're not going to reinforce it with rope, are you? Uh, not, not string. You'll use solid rope. You'll reinforce that load. You'll strengthen it. And Paul's saying we should be strengthened in the faith. And finally, the way they are to continue is to be abounding in thankfulness to God. They shouldn't be ungrateful for what they've begun with. They shouldn't think it's... Uh, it's pretty weak and pathetic. They should be actually abounding in thanks to God for what Jesus has done for them. That's the right way to continue. And so here we get a picture in Colossians at the very start where Paul's encouraging his church, his people, to stand firm in Christ and to continue in their knowledge of the Lord Jesus, not to move from that. Now, from time to time, the Christian life uh, can be a difficult journey. There's no doubting it. At times, we can find things pretty hard and we can be discouraged. And we can forget that we do enjoy a good reality, though, and that's life with God that comes through Jesus. At times in life, we can feel on fire for the Lord. And at other times, we can feel like we're just muddling along, keeping our head above waters. But the word of God challenges us this morning. Even if we're just muddling along, we shouldn't be moving away from what we began with. The challenge is not to forget the good beginning that we had when we became Christians. We mustn't leave that good start behind and move to other things. Instead, we're called to continue in Christ, to walk in Christ, to maintain what we began with in our Lord Jesus. Paul's emphasising these things because he doesn't want his Christian brothers and sisters to be led astray. He doesn't want them to uh, finish up in the Christian life. And so he reminds them not to be led astray from Jesus because Jesus is the centre of it all. Jesus is very significant, is what we'll see in these next few verses. In chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, we read, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Paul's teaching these people not to be duped by false teachers. The uh, Greek behind this idea of see, the, see to it that no one takes you captive is He's saying, see to it that no one carries you off like booty. Uh, in a war, soldiers struggle, and when one wins, they have some booty left over, which they like to carry away. He's saying, look, don't be like that booty getting carried off. Don't be like someone who's being taken captive by some words which are a bit intricate with some weird ideas. These words and the teaching from these philosophers are described as hollow and deceptive philosophy. It's hollow. There's no real substance to it. And it's deceptive. It's not going to actually lead them anywhere good. It's just going to fool them. It has the appearance of wisdom, but it's actually 
there's no real value in it. He says that the philosophy that's coming across them depends on human traditions. This is not really some revelation from God that's legitimate. It's just something that people made up. It's a type of fantasy land that they're entering into. And it depends on what's described as the basic principles of this world. And a better translation of that might be the elemental spirits of the universe. It's depending on some kind of spiritual realm that's got nothing to do with the living and true God. Those words talking about the basic principles, there's actually a word called the stoicheia. And it's been used to refer to the 12 star signs of the zodiac. You might be familiar with those. Aries, Taurus, Gemini, Cancer, Leo, Virgo, Libra, Scorpio, Sagittarius, Capricorn, Aquarius and Pisces. Those star signs, some have understood that behind those stars are some kind of angelic beings, some kind of spiritual powers which actually control the fate of the universe. And so... People in Paul's time at Colossae, they lived in fear of that spiritual realm and they wanted to deal with their guilt for sin perhaps by going through some regulations to placate those spirits. But Paul's saying if they live in fear of those spirits and participate in regulations, then they're actually forgetting that Jesus is the one who's the Lord over all things. He's Lord over every aspect of supernatural power that there is. He reminds them that Jesus is supreme. We see that in verse 9. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. People don't need to go and pursue some kind of uh, fanciful spiritual ritual to try to come to see God. God in all his fullness has appeared in bodily form when Jesus took on flesh. Jesus isn't merely a reflection of God. Jesus was and is absolute and perfect God in his fullness. If you're a person who wants to come to know God, then come to know Jesus and you do come to know the living and true God. When I was a younger man, I had a vague kind of belief in God. I believed that God was there, but it wasn't until I started to read the word read about Jesus, come to know him and what he's accomplished for me, that things really started to take shape and take focus. I could see from the Bible that I could have an assurance that I was right with God through the work of what this perfect man had done for me. I could see that I could enjoy a meaningful relationship with God because Jesus came to give me life with God. That's this Jesus who we're reading about this morning. He changed the hearts of the Colossians and he can change your heart as well. And when we come to a living faith in Jesus, Paul wants us to know that we have completeness or fullness in Christ. We'll see that in verse 10 through to 15. Verse 10 says, And you have been given fullness in Christ who is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ. 
having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith and the power of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us, and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. If we've come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul assures us that we lack nothing. From time to time, people give us the impression that we need to move on from that basic faith that we began with and that we need something extra, something that the super-Christians might have. And yet that's simply not true. For the Spirit of God wants us to understand something this morning, something wonderful, and it's there in verse 10. And you have been given fullness in Christ. We don't need to feel inferior when people talk about some super-experience that they've had when they talk it up, in Christ we've got all we need. In Christ we've been given fullness and we lack nothing. We're right with God and we can walk with the Lord. Furthermore, Paul goes on to describe how it is that we we do have this fullness in Christ. And he seems to be responding to some kind of Jewish mysticism because he raises the topic of circumcision here. Against other people who would perhaps hand down some legalistic way to come to life with God, perhaps involving circumcision. Paul's saying, you Christians, you already have true circumcision in the putting off of the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ. These are some uh, tricky verses to interpret. One approach to the clause in verse 11, which reads in the putting off of the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ has been understood as, where it says in the circumcision of Christ, as what's called something that's happened to Christ, the circumcision of Christ. As one commentator puts it like this, Christ was circumcised, that is, killed on the cross. It was the complete putting off of the flesh affected on the cross. The stripping off of Christ's flesh on the cross was a type of circumcision that the Christian shares in that circumcision of Christ. And so no further religious legalistic practice is required. It can't improve on the work of Jesus on the cross. His death, his work is sufficient for the forgiveness of our sins. Baptism also, verse 12, points us to the new life that we have lived in the fullness of Christ. Verse 12 reads, Having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. Well, I suppose the other approach to understanding that idea about the um, in the circumcision of Christ is to understand this as something that Christ has done for us, that he's somehow given us a special kind of circumcision where we put off the body of flesh in baptism, where, in a sense, baptism's almost 
looked upon as that special kind of circumcision, where we're putting off an old way of life, we're dying to an old world, and we're coming to alive to a new world. It's difficult to be precise about how to understand this idea of circumcision, but Paul's using these arguments to say, well, in Christ we've got what we need. And certainly in baptism we're united to Jesus. We're united to him in his death and in his resurrection. And it points to a new life that we've got. And it means that we're released from somehow thinking that any other powers and authorities, some other spiritual rulers have got authority over us. We're actually united to Christ who is in control over all other powers and authorities, who's the head over every power and authority. Well, the life that we live in the fullness of Christ is based on the fact that we enjoy forgiveness of our sins. Verse 13 and 14 talk about this. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. This uh, expression, the written code, it's not necessarily referring to the law, but more a record of debt that we owe to God. This is another translation that says, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. This is a type of IOU from humanity to God. A few years ago, I watched a fairly ridiculous show that I can't really commend to you that well. It was called Dumb and Dumber with Jim Carrey in it. Uh, I don't know if you remember that show. It's going back a while. In that show, two goofy guys come into some money, which they just actually belonging to someone else, and they mismanage it. And by the time they meet the person that they owe the money to, they don't have any money to show. But when they meet him, they have these two shopping bags full bags full of tickets and they break the news to him and say but don't worry we don't have the money but look at these these are as good as money this is a bag of IOUs you just read the little ticket that says the person's name and they can owe you the money well needless to say that the person receiving the, the bags of IOU wasn't that thrilled they couldn't pay they owed a debt and they couldn't pay all they had was IOUs so taking it from the ridiculous back to the more sublime uh, the point here is that we owe a debt to God. We've sinned against God. We've fallen short in many ways. We owe him, but what we're being told this morning is that that record, those IOU tickets, are destroyed. We're told that he took it away. He took away that, that written code, that IOU, and nailed it to the cross. It's on the basis of the work of Christ that we enjoy forgiveness of sins, not through participating in some legalistic regulation. And so the work of Christ deals with the Colossians' problem of fear, of their guilt from their sin. They don't need to think about placating some spiritual beings. It's unnecessary because Jesus has done it for us. In verse 15, Paul speaks about the kind of victory that we enjoy 
over all spiritual powers and authorities. In verse 15 he says, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. This section began with that warning to the Colossians of those who commend the basic principles of this world, those elemental spirits. And he's reminding us that Christ has actually triumphed over all powers and authorities. The evil powers are now disarmed and they don't need to be placated by rituals. We enjoy forgiveness of sins through the cross. And we have completeness in Christ. We've got fullness in Christ. There's no different grades of Christian, some who's the super Christian and some who's the grunt. Uh, We've got fullness in Christ if we're in Christ. But that doesn't mean there won't be temptation for people to move on. We start to see some of the pressure that might be coming upon this church in Colossae uh, to become complete because other people start to judge these Christians. We'll pick it up in chapter 2, verse 16 to 23. Verse 16 says, Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what he has seen and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He has lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles or elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. But they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. There seemed to be people who were judging the Colossians, but the kind of measure that they were using was legalism, some mysticism, and probably mixed in with all this was the idea of trying to be a spiritually elite person. That's really a movement away from the completeness that Paul's saying that they have in Christ. So what exactly was it was the kind of problem that they were faced with. Well, some scholars have concluded that there's a a Jewish mysticism that's behind this false philosophy. It's called Merkabah mysticism. And Merkabah is actually the Hebrew word for a chariot. We're left with the impression that some people are trying to make a heavenly ascent to picture or view angels worshipping God. And the way that they're trying to have some mystical uh, vision or ascent into the heavenlies is to participate in some fastidious law-keeping and, and rules, to get involved in some strict observance of the law and fast and observe purity laws. There's all kinds of regulations that they've got to try to go through, preparing themselves for some kind of heavenly ascent, to view God in his heavenly court 
with angels attending him. Now the scriptures do speak about God in terms of being like a judge or a king in a heavenly court with angels surrounding him. One uh, reference from Isaiah, Isaiah looks into heaven, he says, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, with the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, these are angel type things, each with six wings, with two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet. And with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And so there's a picture from Isaiah of what what it's like in the heavenlies. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel writes, As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. This is the idea that his, his throne's a type of chariot. This is kind of image we see in Ezekiel as well, this movable throne that's not just limited to being in Israel in the temple, but God's throne is actually movable. And its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated. And the books were opened. And so we kind of get this picture into heaven. Another Jewish document called One Enoch, we find out that Enoch describes an upward flight to the dwelling place of God, which is described as the great glory seated on the chariot throne and he's attended by cherubim. And cherubim aren't fat little angels that are cute and cuddly on postcards these are fierce kind of creatures uh, that are saying you can't presume to come up to this holy space it's almost like god's bodyguards and there's another couple of documents from around the time of the dead sea scrolls which have songs invoking angelic praise to god and they contain some sort of mystical visions regarding the appearance of this chariot throne and the movement of this chariot throne. And we get the picture that there's some of the people in this time who were saying, look, you've got to carry out some of these weird practices. You've got to, you've got to fast and starve yourself. They might have one of those rings that Scott talked about where you had a, a little thorn sticking into your flesh, the harsh treatment of the body. They had to be uh, going through particular purity rituals and things And if they actually did this on so many Sabbath days, they'd then be ready to make their heavenly ascent and to uh, watch the angels worshipping God and that kind of thing. But Paul's saying that that's that's really fantasy land. That's wacko stuff. That's actually taking us away from a simple, simple work of Christ which deals with our sin to get us right with God. For the record, I haven't felt much pressure in the world that I live in to actually uh, compete with that kind of teaching. I haven't had too many people say, hey, Peter, I want to go and miss a couple of meals and uh, wear a hair shirt to get ready to take a heavenly ascent and watch the angels worshipping God. I haven't really had that in recent times. You can tell me later if you have, but um, I find more people say things to me like, look, if you really want to go into maturity in Christ, you need something more, Peter. You need a spiritual experience. And yet today the passage is reminding us that if you're a person that trusts in Jesus as Lord and Saviour, if you've asked God to forgive your sins 
and you've relied on the work of Christ, that he's been your substitute, that he took your sins upon himself, then if that's true for you, the Bible's message is that you have fullness in Christ. You are complete. You're not a brummy Christian. Uh, and that those people who are maybe the super spirituals, they've really started to move away from the essence of Christianity. We don't need to move away from that. The other funny thing is that though people who do try to drum this kind of, you know, you need something more type path, you need a spiritual experience to really move on to maturity, what they end up doing unwittingly, it seems sometimes, is they're trying to create two statuses of Christian. The super spiritual, elite Christian, the special forces Christian, if I can put it those ways, and then there's the grunt Christian, of which I'm a member. <laughs> but this seems to go against the grain of what the Bible teaches. This is what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. He says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The gospel flattens it out. Just because I'm down the front giving the talk today doesn't mean I've got any more closer link with the Lord than you do if your trust is in Christ. There's no rank in it. We're all one in Christ Jesus. We've all got direct access to God and forgiveness through Christ. And so this, this emphasis on I need something more is actually a movement away from what the Bible teaches us about what we share in Christ. Well, the question remains then, how will we continue in Christ? Well, much of what we've got to do seems to be to keep our wits about us, to be on the guard against people who've got to say, you need something more. God in his goodness has given his word for us to read, to think about, to understand, to put into practice and to believe. And so the challenges for us become things like reading it, thinking about it and understanding it and letting it be the basis for our assurance. And so it's good for us to be people who actually spend time reading the Bible, trying to understand what a book of the Bible is about. Now it's not easy to do, is it? It's a challenge, it's a discipline. And that's part of the reason why it's good to meet in small groups with people. Because when we meet up in a small group with people to read the Bible, they're also working with us to help us to understand what the Bible teaches so we can have that assurance. We don't have to be taken away or fooled by these people who want to denigrate the legitimate faith that we have in Jesus already. Paul speaks about us being rooted and built up in Christ and that battle begins in our minds. In Romans chapter 12, Paul says, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test. <coughs> Pardon me. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So let us be people who continue in Christ the way that we began. If we began with our trust in Jesus, let's not move away from that and let's continue to appreciate what the Bible says we have in Christ. In him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Let's not move away from him. Let's be people who continue to be understanding what the word says about the significance of that. Let's do that by reading the Bible ourselves and by meeting weekly to hear the Bible preached at church and also in small groups. That's a good thing to do. Well, let's come before the Lord in prayer now and ask God to help us to have our wits about us. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for this good passage today which 
reminds us that we are united to Christ and that he's um, paid for our sins, that we don't need to fear guilt anymore because of what he's done for us. Lord, we thank you that we enjoy fullness in Christ, that we enjoy life with you, that we're close to you because of his work, that we needn't participate in any legalistic or other rituals or mystical experiences in order to get closer to you. Lord, we thank you for your goodness to us in giving us these things written clearly in your word, that our faith might rest on them. And Lord, we pray for wisdom and discipline to be very familiar with what your word teaches so that we can uh, defend our faith from other temptations and other false teachings. We thank you for this time we have this morning to think about this passage uh, and we pray that you would help us to encourage each other in Christ. We thank you for this time now and we pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.